Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Ed Hulls, publisher at Murania Press, discusses Hollywood Pulp. It is a look at stories that jumped from the pages of the Pulp magazines to the silver screen. The talk was recorded on August 15, 2019, at Pulp Fest 2019 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So as, as Mike pointed out, my, my two big passions as a fan and a collector have always been movies and Pulp Fiction. So it was only natural that sooner or later I was going to want to explore the nexus. And I've been doing research and conducting interviews with movie people for over 45 years. So the genesis of tonight's, uh, tonight's presentation is actually a book that I've been working on for many years, which is called Pulp Page to Silver Screen, an Encyclopedia of Films Based on Pulp Fiction Stories. So it's a, a, an encyclopedia. I had hoped to debut it here, but for a variety of technical reasons, I couldn't get, the, I couldn't get it done in time. So it's coming soon. Um, you may know, if you think about movies that you're familiar with that were adapted from pulp magazines, you can probably think of the, the big ones pretty quickly. Tarzan movies, the Conan the Barbarian movies, the Maltese Falcon, um, the thing from another world, Zorro. You may not be aware of just how extensive um, the relationship between Hollywood and the pulp magazine was. There are, in fact, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies that were made almost from the dawn of the moving picture era up to the present day that have been adapted from pulp stories. I can't give you an exact number because frankly, after over 40 years of research, I still don't know. As I am putting this book together, I am still coming across new titles. Now, why has that happened? You would think there's a finite universe of movies that have been made in the last hundred years, you'd think that I would, I'd be able to nail it down. Well, one of the things that makes it very difficult is that a lot of stories um, ran under the pulps as one title, and then when they were printed in hardback, it was a different title. So a lot of times, the credits and the official studio records will have the title of the book, but not the title of the pulp story. Now, if it's something written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, obviously I'm going to know what that is. That's not a big problem. If it's something written by, you know, George Bronson Howard, it's a more obscure figure and it's infinitely harder to nail these things down. Having said that, I've come up with what I think is a, a pretty substantial, significant, and largely complete list, although I have no doubt that I'll be adding titles uh, and blurbs to the book as it's done. So movies, we generally consider the beginning of the motion picture narrative era. In other words, when movies expanded beyond uh, little presentations of county fairs and subway rides and things like that, the first narrative movie is generally thought to be The Great Train Robbery, produced by the Thomas Edison Company in 1903. That's actually not the case, but that's an entirely different presentation. It could be an hour by itself. But let's use that as a jumping off point. The earliest that I've been able to uh, identify, the earliest pulp-related movie I've been able to identify is 1910. Now, in those days, there were no feature, what we call feature-length films. The term feature, in movie jargon, 
Uh, it was actually taken from vaudeville, in which the feature of a vaudeville presentation was the lead act, the most important act. So a feature as a movie in the Nickelodeon days, when most movies ran 10 to 15 minutes long, a feature could just be something that was a little special. Maybe it had a star, maybe it had a little extra money to it, maybe it had a big cast. It, it was something to distinguish it from the other sausages that were being ground out by the studios. Um, in those days, if you had something that was popular, the best way to do it was to do it as a continuing series. Now, uh, again, without getting into the weeds, the Edison Company was involved with something called the Motion Picture Patents Company, which was essentially a monopoly. They had a lot of small companies and who used Edison cameras and projectors and patents that he held. So he extracted money from them and he kind of fused them into one company. So the patents company had control of the business, again, during the Nickelodeon era. And most of what they turned out were what they call split reels, which might have been a five or six minute short, or a one reeler, which depending on the speed that it was shot, could run 10 to 15 minutes, or a really deluxe presentation was called a two reeler, which was 20 to 25 minutes in projection speed. So as these things became popular, the people who were making motion pictures were predominantly in the early days technicians. They were photographers, they were mechanics, they were lighting engineers, they weren't skilled dramatists. There was no thought that the movie industry would involve to something where you would be telling complete stories and putting them over for dramatic value. So they needed story material. They would write rudimentary stories. A lot of times they would improvise these one-reelers in a day. They'd say, hey, let's do something where a cowboy rescues a girl from a rustler. And they would just improvise it. There would be no script. They would go out and usually in the wilds of Fort Lee, New Jersey, which at that time passed for the West before production moved to California. But eventually they said, we're going to need story material. So they started buying published stories from magazines, books not so much in those early days because, again, trying to condense the events of a whole novel into a 10 or 15 minute production was pretty much a hopeless task. But there were a lot of short stories that were adapted. So naturally, the all fiction magazines, which were very big at this time, um, really coming into prominence, was a, a fertile ground for these fledgling filmmakers to get story material from. So the earliest series of pulp magazine stories that became a series of motion pictures was produced by the aforementioned Edison Company. It's called The Chronicles of Clique. Now, if you really know your pulp history, Clique, AKA the Man of 40 Faces, was a kind of detective character who appeared in a series in Short Stories magazine. It was written by a guy named Thomas Hanshu and later co-written by Hanshu with his wife, Mary. So what they did was they licensed the rights, and this ad, you can't see it, but the, the copy in the first paragraph actually says, this film was produced in cooperation with Short Stories. So they licensed the stories that appeared, and they had to turn them into scripts. That process itself was still evolving at this time. So you can see a script from one 1910 movie and it's gonna look radically different from another 1910 script. This series debuted in the year 1913 and it is the first continuing series of films to use the same pulp magazine character. There were others. Uh, within just a year or two, there was a series uh, based on Clarence Herbert News, Adventures of a Diplomatic Freelance, 
series, which ran in Blue Book. And then a couple of years after that, from Street and Smith's The Popular Magazine, there was a series by George Bronson Howard called York Neroy. And Neroy was kind of a diplomatic agent who posed as kind of a fashion plate and a fop, but who was actually working all around the world um, on behalf of Americans who found themselves in trouble. So that became a very popular series. Again, these were short pictures. The first pulp magazine adaptation that made a major impact, you can imagine, was Tarzan of the Apes. This was the 1918 feature film that starred Elmo Lincoln. Now, this particular poster shows Tarzan as a boy. That actor's name was Gordon Griffith, and he played the young Tarzan. <clears throat> you can see the wonder story of the age. It really was, and note the poster on the bottom. It says, a thousand people, a thousand. That actually is supposed to refer to the number of extras they employed in the making of this movie. In fact, you can watch this movie 20 times and never see anything remotely close to a thousand people. So even in 1918, when this movie was made and released, already hyperbole was a big part of the Hollywood scene. But unlike those early one and two reelers of the Nickelodeon era, by this time the term feature meant feature film and it meant something that by itself could constitute an evening's entertainment. Five reels, six reels, even eight reels. And at the slowest speed, an eight reeler would give you close to two hours of running time. The original Tarzan of the Apes ran 10 reels, which was quite an epic length for a film of this time. But um, unfortunately, the theater owners found that it was too long to sustain the interest. And it was also too long to give them the number of shows they needed to make a profit in any one given evening. So the version of Tarzan of the Apes that, that currently exists, the only one available to us, is actually a cut five-reel version, which runs, depending on projection speed, anywhere between an hour and 75 minutes. But it can't be under overestimated how important this movie was. Now, by this time, by the time this movie came out in 1918, as I was going through the research, uh, movie makers were buying stories both from the pulps and from the slick magazines. But when you total up the number of movies that were made in any given year, the two most popular magazines that stories were licensed from were the Saturday Evening Post, which was obviously the biggest fiction, you know, biggest magazine in the country that ran fiction, and All Story, Muncie's All Story Weekly. Those were the two top. Most of the stories that were being licensed from pulps at this time were being licensed from one of those two magazines. So the fact that a lowly pulp magazine was, was producing as many uh, plots and stories and characters as, as the famous Saturday Evening Post was uh, uh, quite a famous thing. By the way, these are in roughly chronological order. Now this is the sequel to Tarzan. <clears throat> this did not star Elmo Lincoln. It starred a guy named Gene Poller. They were originally gonna call it The Return of Tarzan because it was nominally based on the second Tarzan book. But some genius said, you know, if we call it The Return of Tarzan, they might think it's the other picture being brought back for a re-release. <laughs> so they changed the title from Return of Tarzan to Revenge of Tarzan. Now, if you can see it, it says Numa Pictures Corporation. The company that, was, that made this movie was actually formed to make Tarzan movies. And they cut a very unusual deal with Edgar Rice Burroughs. The deal that they made they paid him a little more than usual, but they were allowed to produce two films from the same book. 
So revenge covered part, and if you'll recall, if you've read Return of Tarzan, it's, it's rather episodic. You know, he goes to the city of Opar in one section, he's in Paris in another section. So they used one section of the, of the novel to make this movie, then later they made a serial, a 15 chapter serial called The Adventures of Tarzan, which was substantially an original story, but it was based on the rest of the novel that hadn't been included in the script for this movie. So this movie came out in um, 1920, and Adventures of Tarzan, produced by the same people, came out in 1921. It, too, was very expensive. So at this particular point, Tarzan was the most popular character who was appearing in pulp magazines, but not the only one. Uh, this is a little out of order, but it just goes to show that not all the movies based on pulp magazine stories were blood and thunder type adventures or jungle pictures or mysteries or westerns. This was a light comedy. Um, it appeared in Argosy All Story Weekly, and it was, uh, the original title was The Wreck, and it was by E.J. Rath, who, if you collect Argosy, that's a name you'll encounter a lot in the early 20s. And this was about a hypochondriac who goes west to try and regain his health. Um, this movie was made in 1923. It was extremely popular. The star was Harrison Ford, obviously not the same Harold Ford. And some of the other people were, were comics who had been in Max Senate comedies and whatnot. So this was kind of a, uh, a comedy. This was an offbeat thing compared to most of the movies that were being adapted from pulp stories at this time. This would not be the only time that Hollywood went to this story. You'll see the better known version a little later. Now this is William Fairbanks, no relation to Douglas Fairbanks. He was a minor Western star. This is really interesting in that it's called The Law Rustlers from the story of the same name by W.C. Tuttle, which appeared in Adventure Magazine. Now Law Rustlers is one of the many Tuttle stories that features a duo of range detectives, Hashknife Hartley and Sleepy Stevens. Amazingly, they don't appear in this, in this adaptation. The star is a, is a completely different character, and while there are two people who have roughly the same narrative function, they're called something else. And I think the reason for that was this was billed as a, as a William Fairbanks starring vehicle, and he wanted to have his part built up even if it meant reducing the parts of the guys who were in the story. This is a very famous picture and based on an equally famous story that was first in All Story Weekly and later was a big success as a novel. It's Frank L. Packard's The Miracle Man. Uh, this is a 1919 movie. The guy all the way over on the far left with his mouth open is a young Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Sr. The actual star of the movie was the second from right here, a guy named Thomas Meehan. The girl in the back is Betty Bronson. And you'll see this little boy there with this elderly man. Uh, this is the, the key scene in the movie in which a bunch of uh, con men have attached themselves to a faith healer who they think is a con man. And in this scene in the movie, the boy who is a cripple throws his crutches down and runs up to the, to the front of the church, at which point the con men are horrified and uh, um, uh, just, they're so stunned that they repent on the spot, more or less. But Cheney, 
Cheney's role, uh, he was, of course, a great pantomimist, and he was capable of incredible physical feats. So he actually, in this movie, poses as a cripple who, in a remarkable scene, to convince who they think are the suckers that the faith healer is real, without knowing that he's for real, Cheney has this scene where he's, he, he actually threw his, his elbow and his arm out of joint purposely to film this scene so he could snap it back into joint. And it's a, a remarkable feat. While this particular sequence exists because it was excerpted in other films later, the, the whole movie is lost, but it's very coveted among silent movie fans. This is, it was, a, a, again, a, I mean, this was the equivalent of something like Star Wars in terms of the, it was a huge, massive success. Reginald Denny, again, this is another example. Edgar Franklin is another guy, who, if you collect Argosy, All Story Weekly in the 20s, you'll see his byline a lot. He was another guy who specialized in a lot of like domestic comedies, things with henpecked husbands and all kinds of plots like that. Reginald Denny was a phenomenal star of silent era comedies for Universal Pictures, which at that time was run by Carl Lemley. The amazing thing was Denny's career was ruined literally ruined when talkies came in because he had, had built his entire career on playing this great young uh, all-American boy type, whereas he came from England and had a cultured English accent and it totally ruined his career as a, as a light comic and he wound up going into character work. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, he's, uh, some of you may see him as the sidekick, uh, Algie Longworth in uh, Bulldog Drummond movies of the 30s. Another William Fairbanks, this is another uh, short stories western by W.C. Tuttle called Spawn of the Desert. Tuttle was um, one of those guys who was really difficult to document in this project because at this time in the early 20s, not only was he selling a lot of his short stories to producers to be adapted by other people, he was also writing original western stories. Now oddly enough, he didn't use any of his already established characters but he, he did write a lot of uh, independent Western short subjects and features. So in trying to document these films, it's given me fits trying to figure out which ones are adaptations and whether or not the, the, uh, the originals are actually retitled uh, pulp stories. But I think I've pretty much got those nailed down. This, I'm cheating a little with this. This actually really isn't in a pulp. It's really from, uh, based on a story from Red Book, which is really a slick. But I really like the poster, so I figured I'd throw it in. <laughs> Priscilla Dean was another totally, totally forgotten today. Doesn't even make most of the film history books, but she was very, very popular in the silent era. She was also a co-star of Lon Chaney's before he started doing the really grotesque parts like Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera. Uh, he used to play a lot of crook melodramas, and she was often co-starred with him in those. There's another one, Betty Compson. She also was very, she was the leading lady in The Miracle Man, that, that thing I showed you. This is a Paramount picture. Um, MGM is generally considered in what we call the golden age of Hollywood to be the most important Hollywood studio. Actually, during the silent era, that was Paramount. That honor belonged to Paramount Pictures, which was by far uh, the biggest, had the best stars. They had Mary Pickford, they had Doug Fairbanks for a while. Uh, they were the major force in the industry. And after the success of Miracle Man, Betty Compson, who up to that point was pretty much just a general ingenue type, became a, a top-billed star of her own. Uh, the story this is based on is called The Noose. 
And I'm, I honestly forget what magazine it was in. Now, here's the big guy. This is Tom Mix there in the center. This shot is more landscape than it is seen, but the importance of this particular still, it's from The Untamed, which was the Western novel that made Max Brand the top hand in that particular genre. It was serialized in All Story Weekly in 1917. It was optioned by Tom Mix, and it was released. Mix, at this time, was, belonged to the Fox Film Corporation, and he played Whistlin' Dan Barry. This picture, again, Mix, up to this point, had been doing contemporary Western comedies, mostly, where type of movies where guys rode on horses and drove around in, in Model A's or Model T's. Um, this movie made him a star of melodramatic subjects because The Untamed is a very serious Western drama. Unfortunately, he was totally miscast as Whistlin' Dan Barry because Whistlin' Dan in the book, The Untamed, and in its sequels, is a youth who looks kind of frail, but being an atavism, he has this phenomenal strength that when he's mad, when he gets aroused, his eyes go yellow and he can throw guys who are twice his size across a, a bar room. Now, Mix was a pretty virile guy. Um, he's by no means meek looking, but what they did do to stress the connection to Whistle and Dan Barry was, even though this was a black and white film, Fox went to the unusual trouble and expense of tinting the film so that when Barry got mad, they would cut to a close-up of his eyes and they would tint the eyes yellow in the close-ups. So that's when you knew he was going to lay the law down to somebody. So again, The Untamed was hugely popular and, and Mix reprised the role the following year in The Night Horseman, also a Fox picture, also a sequel to the Max Brand story. This is Mix again doing another Max Brand story. That's him on the left. The guy in the middle is Frank Campo, very popular uh, character actor in the John Ford Stock Company. The girl is Claire Adams. This movie is made about Mix's horse. Mix had a famous horse called Tony. And fans kept writing to the Fox studio saying, we want more Tony. We love Tom, but we want more Tony. So this is a version of a Max Brand novel called Alcatraz, which has nothing to do with the prison. Alcatraz is the name of a horse. But they retitled the horse. They made the horse Tony in this movie. So as if to tell, leave no doubt as to what the viewer would be expecting, the title of the movie is Just Tony. <laughs> this is Lon Chaney again uh, with a rather hirsute adversary. This is a still from the 1925 version of The Unholy Three, which is based on a Todd Robbins serial in short story magazine called The Terrible Three. This was another one of those pictures. I know it's, it seems crazy to keep saying, well, these were big hits. I've kind of selected the ones that were big hits in order to give you an example of, of how important these movies were to the industry. Uh, this was made in 1925 as a silent movie, but it was so popular that when sound came in, MGM decided to remake it as a talking picture with Cheney in the same part. Uh, unfortunately, it was the last movie, his first talkie and his last movie. He developed cancer and died shortly after that. Had he continued, the movie he was going to make after the talkie version of Unholy Three was to be Dracula. And that part went to Bela Lugosi when Cheney died. 
There he is, we're celebrating his 100th birthday. That is Senor Zorro, AKA Don Diego Vega. That's Doug Fairbanks, and this is from The Mark of Zorro. Fairbanks up to this time was another guy who was best known for his comedies. He was another all-American boy type. He, he, was, uh, he, was very, he, he was the kind of guy who played in a lot of stories that were popular in Street and Smith's popular magazine. He was a young man who was faced with a business that was failing or some kind of challenge and using his own unique blend of athleticism and good old American stick-to-itiveness, he always triumphed, always made a success of whatever venture he was involved with. But he made a lot of those movies. Between 1915 when he started and 1920, he made a couple of dozen movies like that in addition to a few westerns. So he decided on something that would radically change his career and his image. There are different versions as to how he found the story, but as, as we've been saying here, The Curse of Capistrano was the Zorro novel that was serialized in All Story Weekly. At some point, Doug found out about it, and he believed Senor Zorro to be the guy who would change the course of his career. So he optioned the novel, and he produced it. Now, Fairbanks, unusual for those days, although today you've got a lot of stars who pretty much are in charge of their own destinies, Fairbanks was in charge of every step of the process. He had a say in designing the costumes. He paid, they built an entire village of Los Angeles out in the San Fernando Valley in California, and he supervised the construction. And Fairbanks had a very unique work. If you've ever seen any films with Douglas Fairbanks, he's jumping and leaping all over the place. One of the things that makes these stunts, which are real, seem so effortless, is that Fairbanks knew what his physical limitations were. And he actually had sets designed so that there was something, if he had to jump over something, it would be just high enough that he could jump over it gracefully. So the idea he was supposed to scale walls, climb trees, jump over whatever, and make it look like it was, like it was effortless. And he did that by having the props and the sets constructed exactly so that they matched his physical ability, so it never looked like he was straining. So when you see him doing all this stuff in Zorro and these other movies, he's really doing it. There's no fakery, there's no camera tricks, but they, they use these other methods of construction and staging to make it seem like he was doing it uh, without any problem. Again, I don't have to tell you, Mark of Zorro was phenomenally successful in that it actually did change the course of his career. And from this point on, he never went back to the old kind of movies. He only starred in Swashbucklers. The next year he was in The Three Musketeers, the year after that he was in Robin Hood, then he was The Thief of Baghdad, then he was The Black Pirate. They were all these period costume uh, uh, melodramas, uh, swashbucklers. And so that literally changed his career and he was bigger than ever. He was a big star when he made Zorro, he was even bigger after its success. He did a sequel, interestingly enough, in 1925 called Don Q, Son of Zorro. But interestingly, it had nothing to do with any of the Zorro stories. It was based on another pulp story that had been in Short Stories magazine with a character called Don Q. Uh, and the stories were written by a guy named Hesketh Pritchard, which is kind of a mouthful. Um, and they just basically grafted the Zorro character onto one of the Don Q stories written by this other guy. But the pulp connection still remained. This is from, uh, again, I really just picked this because I love the poster. Just beautiful poster. These posters from the 20s are just beautifully designed, great colors. The Night Ride is based on a, a pretty minor story by a minor author named Henry Lacassette. 
It too appeared in Adventure magazine. It was a, a pretty run-of-the-mill gangster story, and as I understand, even though the film is lost, based on the reviews that I've read of people who saw it back in the day, uh, they thought it was pretty nondescript also. But the poster is great. Now we're moving into the talking film era. You may or may not recognize her, but on the left, that is Myrna Loy, before she was Nora Charles, before she played all these sophisticated cocktail-drinking heroines. The guy on the right is Victor McLaughlin. The director is John Ford. The film is called The Black Watch, released by Fox Film Corp. in 1929. It's an adaptation of King of the Kyber Rifles. And McLaughlin is playing King, and Myrna Loy is playing Yasmini who, of course, was the famous kind of femme fatale character um, that Mundy created. Uh, this story originally was serialized in Everybody's Magazine. Um, Fox did make a sequel 25 years later with Tyrone Power, but it took absolutely nothing from the book except the title. They couldn't even get King's first name right. In the book, King's first name is Athelstan and they called him Don, or Donald, in the, in the movie. I guess they figured that that was an actor's nightmare, trying to say a Felston over and over again. Uh, this was not a big success, but it was John Ford's second all-talking picture, and um, Loy at this time was kind of noted for playing these oriental or semi-oriental vamps. As a matter of fact, she was still doing the same thing. In 1932, she played uh, Follow Sui, the daughter of Fu Manchu, and MGM's mask of Fu Manchu. But since that's from Slick magazines, we won't discuss that here. So remember I talked to you a little earlier about the nervous wreck, about the hypochondriac who goes west to regain his health? That story, which was called The Wreck by E.J. Rath, that had appeared in Argosy, was, turned, was purchased by Flo Ziegfeld, the theatrical impresario, and of all things turned into a Broadway musical comedy called Whoopi, which was a huge Broadway smash. Uh, the original run was very lengthy and it was revived several times. And um, Hollywood bought it, Samuel Goldwyn bought it in 1930 and thought it would make a dandy musical comedy, not only to exploit talking pictures, which were newly popular, but also the new Technicolor process. So he brought Eddie Cantor to reprise his role from the stage show. So Whoopi may be um, the only Ziegfeld production based from a pulp magazine. I think I'm pretty safe in claiming that. That's the only pulp magazine story that was based on a, uh, that was made by Flo Ziegfeld. This is a close second to Whoopi. Phantom President, uh, you probably don't recognize him because nobody does these days. The guy on the right is the famous actor, writer, stage director, performer George M. Cohan, whose life story was dramatized by Jimmy Cagney and Yankee Doodle Dandy, one of the towering figures of Broadway history in his only sound film appearance, Jimmy Durante at the piano, and the flapper over there on the left, believe it or not, is Claudette Colbert. Now the funny thing is, the, the deal with this movie, which took place during a presidential election year, is that there's a candidate of a party who's really got great ideas, he's got great policy proposals, but he has no charisma whatsoever. And the party is, they said, this guy should win in a walk, but people fall asleep listening to him. So 
they hire a double to impersonate him at campaign rallies. And so this guy, who is a live wire, sings and dances and does all kinds of things at this political rally. The crazy thing is it's a great premise for a musical comedy, but the story, which was serialized in Blue Book magazine, uses the premise seriously. It's the same story. It's a presidential guy. They, they think he would make a great president, but they don't think he can win the election. And they bring in a ringer to impersonate him to get votes. So whose idea exactly it was to change it from like a, a dramatic story to a vehicle for George M. Cohan? I don't know, but he deserves a medal. Uh, we ran this movie at one of the Windy City film programs early on. It was like... And I was standing up in the front because I wanted to see the reaction of people with some of the, the stuff that was going on here. It's like that scene in the producers where they're doing springtime for Hitler and they cut to a shot of the audience and the whole audience... <laughs> that was the audience at the Windy City. They could not believe they were looking at a movie that was based on a pulp story. That, that, we, that may be due for a repeat. Uh, this is another shot that's Cohan and Claudette Colbert. This is George O'Brien. We talked about Max Brand again. Max Brand has, has the distinction. He was an amazingly popular and prolific pulp writer, as we know. Specialized in westerns, but did other things as well. He actually has more pulp movies to his credit than Edgar Rice Burroughs does. They adapted more of his stories. This one is called Fair Warning. And uh, I include this as a point of personal privilege because its star, George O'Brien, on the left, was a friend of mine in his later years of life. He played Whistlin' Dan Barry, the same part that Tom Mix had played in the silent movie. Now, George, as you can see, is an extremely robust guy. He wasn't any better suited for the part than Tom Mix was, um, but this was a pretty credible version of The Untamed. Uh, however, George did not reprise the role as Mix did. So this was his one and only turn as Whistling Dan Barry. This is George O'Brien again. This is a shot from uh, Zane Gray's The Rainbow Trail. Now this is one of those movies that was kind of a close call for me because everybody knows The Rainbow Trail is a book. It was actually first published in Pulps, serialized under the title The Desert Crucible. So I was able to sneak it in because its first appearance really was in a pulp magazine. And they really are out there in the Grand Canyon, not far from where events of the book take place. So that's George, he's got his hands tied behind him, he's just about to get walked off a cliff and he will be rescued about 10 seconds after this scene takes place. So this is a 1932 Fox film release. Over there on the left we have Ricardo Cortez who was started in silent films as kind of an imitation Rudolph Valentino. They tried to make him a Latin lover. His real name was Jacob Krantz, and he was from Brooklyn. <laughs> the girl is Bibi Daniels, who was, a, again, a very popular and versatile star of silent movies, started as a child star in the early silence, became a leading lady. She's probably best remembered today, if at all, as the temperamental star in the movie 42nd Street who sprains her ankle just before the big show and gives Ruby Keeler her big break. They are together in the first version of a little movie called The Maltese Falcon, produced in 1931 by Warner Brothers from the Dashiell Hammett novel, which was serialized in Black Mask. For many years, this movie was unavailable because Warner Brothers, especially when they started releasing their movies to TV, 
they did not want this to conflict with the Bogart version. So they kind of kept it out of circulation. When they did restore it to the TV, they changed the title to Dangerous Blonde. So there would, uh, you know, just to make sure that nobody thought. But obviously, they're using the same book, and, and just like the Bogart version, this uses a lot of the dialogue from Hammett's story. So uh, it's, it's pretty easy to tell what it is. Now, there was another version of Maltese Falcon called Satan Met a Lady, which starred Betty Davis in the part of uh, Miss Wonderly, and a guy named Warren William as a Sam Shane simulacrum. And I say that because it's not a real adaptation of the story. They used the plot of the story, the structure of the story, and the characters. They renamed them all, and uh, it's, it's, they're, they're after something else besides the Falcon. It is a terrible, terrible movie. It's a total misfire, and as a matter of fact, it was a punishment to Betty Davis because she was angling for a better part in a big A movie, and to punish her, they put her in Satan Metal Lady. So I couldn't, I couldn't bear my, I couldn't bear to put that on the screen. So I'm just telling you that. For <laughs> Tom Mix is back now. This is his first talking picture, 1932. Another classic. I would say, arguably one of the best-known Western stories, if not the best, to start in a pulp magazine. It was serialized in Street and Smith's Western Story magazine as Twelve Peers and it was published in book form as Destry Rides Again. So when Mix decided he wanted to get back into movies after an absence of several years, he was very nervous about appearing in talkies because he had a, a very poor fitting set of dentures that made it difficult for him to articulate lines clearly. So he was very nervous and Universal to protect their investment said, well, let's, we gotta license a property that's really great that everybody is dying to see so that that will make an acceptable version for him and hopefully they, they won't mind that he garbles his lines. So even though this was kind of a B-level picture, it did A-level business. Um, unfortunately, Mix only made seven or eight more westerns after that. A couple of those were based on Pulp Stories also. But by this time he was in his late 50s and while making one of the last pictures, he was badly injured. And he went to Carl Emley, the president of Universal, and he said, you know, I've nearly died twice making these movies. It's just not worth it anymore. So he went back to appearing in circuses and rodeos and things like that. He did make one more movie after that, a serial, which um, was kind of a letdown for most mixed fans. But the combination of Destry... Now, by the way, I should mention that Destry as you probably remember, has been done several times, most famously as a movie in 1939 with Jimmy Stewart and Marlena Dietrich. Again, that is an adaptation in name only. The only thing they take from the book is the title. The Jimmy Stewart version is a complete fabrication. Whereas the mixed version, while it takes a lot of liberties with Brand's original, is a legitimate adaptation and does have all the high points of Max Brand's novel. <clears throat> this is William Powell. The, the Thin Man himself in 1932 when he was a contract player at Warner Brothers. The other actor is a guy named Arthur Hole. You might recognize him if you're a vintage movie fan. He always played bad guys, kind of slimy characters, crooked lawyers and things like that. This is from a movie called Private Detective 62. It originally was based on a story by Raoul Whitfield in Black Mask called Man Killer. And it was one of Whitfield's unsuccessful series characters, a guy named Don Free. 
there are only three or four Don Free stories. This is the only one that made it to the screen. It happens to be a really good little movie. We ran out of Windy City, I think, the year before last. And it's a really nice movie. It plays on Turner Classic Movies frequently, and it's available on DVD. It's a really good part for Powell, but of course, nothing like his Thin Man pictures. This, uh, we're going to Hammett. This is the seldom seen 1935 version of The Glass Key, which was the novel that he wrote for Black Mask after the Maltese Falcon. This was the first of several movie versions Matter of fact, the remake, the 1942 Glass Key with Alan Ladd was just on uh, Turner Classic Movies the other night. But this is George Raft in the center playing the character played by Alan Ladd in the remake. And that's a very young Ray Moland on the right. He's playing the wastrel son of the senator uh, who gets murdered in the second reel of the movie. The girl on the left is a uh, mediocre actress named Rosalind Keith who didn't, didn't amount to much. Uh, the Glass Key, just like the original version of the Maltese Falcon, was a very hard movie to see for many, many years, and for the same reason. Paramount distributed the TV version with the much better uh, received Alan Ladd version, and they didn't want this to conflict with that. But again, we were able to get it. It did come out on 16mm, and we ran this also at one of the early Windy City film shows. By the way, if you go to Windy City, we really do have some great movies. Our, our deal is we only run movies that are adapted from pulp stories. And I try to get the most obscure and interesting offbeat ones I can find. Now, this is a very interesting case. On the left, that is Glenda Farrell on, uh, sitting in the chair is a gal named Winnie Shaw. If you've ever seen the movie Gold Diggers of 35 with the classic Busby Berkeley number, The Lullaby of Broadway, Winnie Shaw is the vocalist on Lullaby of Broadway. The guy on the right is Barton McLean, who usually played these thick ear types, played a lot of heavies, a lot of dumb cops and things like that. This is from a movie called Smart Blonde, which was the first in a Warner Brothers series called Torchy Blaine. Torchy Blaine is a demon reporter whose sweetheart is police captain Steve McBride. Now, what makes this interesting is that in the pulp stories written by Frederick Neville about Captain Steve McBride, the reporter is actually a male who is frequently drunk and not at all romantically inclined towards Steve McBride. But Warner Brothers, in their wisdom, had Glenda Farrell under contract. They wasn't, wasn't doing anything. And they said, let's try this out. Let's see if it works. Well, it worked well enough that they did seven or eight pictures together. Oddly enough, this is the only one based on a Neville story. However, I did discover that one of the later entries in the series was based on a story by Murray Leinster from 1918 called The Purple Cipher, which has nothing to do with Depression-era crime stories, but they adapted it for a Torchy Blaine movie. So even though this is the only one that comes from the Frederick Neville original story, which was called No Hard Feelings, um, there was that one other that came from a pulp story. And they're all written up in the encyclopedia. <clears throat> this is another one that was really obscure. This gave me fits trying to track this down. Those of you who read uh, the magazine Dime Detective or some of Altus Press's great Dime Detective uh, collections will be familiar with a Fred McIsaac character called The Rambler, who was a reporter named Francis Addison Murphy who couldn't stay in one spot very long. 
Even though it was a pretty obscure series, although a very good series, Universal optioned it in 1937. The guy in the middle there is James Dunn, who had been an early star of talking pictures at Fox, who was in the process of drinking his career down the drain. So this B picture, that's Andy Devine over on the left, is based on a, a Rambler story called Murder on the Mississippi, and that was the original title of the movie, but it was released to theaters as Mysterious Crossing, 1937 Universal. We all, again, we ran that at Windy City. It's, it's quite an entertaining movie, but Dunn's take on the Rambler is nowhere near as hard-boiled as McIsaac's stories. One more mystery, um, Borden Chase, if you're familiar with that name, he was the guy who's probably best known these days for writing the novel that was made into the movie Red River with John Wayne and Montgomery Clift. That was a novel that uh, serialized in Slicks. He was very popular in Slicks, but before he crashed the Slicks, he wrote for Argosy, and one of the series characters for Argosy was called Smooth Kyle who was kind of a freelancer at first, but eventually wound up working for the US Treasury Department. This is another one of those examples where they licensed a popular series, and you think you're going to see the guy you're paying to see, and they didn't call him Smooth Kyle. They called him something else. But that's him over on the left. That's Brian Donlevy, who usually wore a mustache in films. The girl in the middle is named Zephy Tilbury. She has another interesting pulp movie connection. She's in an R Gang comedy, reading an issue of Wild West Weekly to the gang. The girl on the right is Frances Drake, who was a beautiful, beautiful woman. I met her when she was in her 80s. She was still ravishing in her 80s, but couldn't act her way out of a paper bag. So this movie is called Midnight Taxi, based on the Argosy serial of the same name. This is a behind the scenes picture. I've also got a number of these in the book. Guy on the left there is Henry B. Walthall, whose claim to fame is he was the leading man of the original Birth of a Nation in 1915. By this time, he, he was uh, um, reduced to doing character parts. Girl in the middle is named Ruth Ford, and that's Lionel Barrymore on the right. This, believe it or not, this is from the adaptation of A. Merritt's Burn Witch Burn. The movie is called The Devil Doll, and uh, it too is something that's on TCM. Now, are we running short of time? I'm out of time? Okay. Uh, not too many. <clears throat> Hopalong Cassidy, of course, even though he made his first appearances in a non-pulp magazine, it was a slick magazine called The Outing, he eventually went to the pulps. Uh, Hopalong Cassidy Returns was a series of short stories that ran in Argosy during 1923 and early 24. This movie has very little to do with those stories, but it is one of the best movies in the series. Again, this was a phenomenally popular series. There were 66 hoppies. This is from the second movie in the series. I just had this because it's got a great rogues gallery of heavies. Uh, the guy on the left is Paul Fix, who was one of John Wayne's real-life cronies. Guy next to him with the beard is John Merton. Guy next to him is named Addison Richards. And the guy on the right here, you'd know him better if he was wearing a beard. His name is Frank Shannon, and he played Dr. Zarkoff in the Flash Gordon serials. Another Western, this one based from uh, a Walt Coburn story in Star Western magazine called The Block K Rides Tonight. The guy in the middle is named Wild Bill Elliott. He was famous in movies. He was a guy whose slogan was, I don't know why everybody wants to fight with me. I'm a peaceable man. And whenever he said, I'm a peaceable man, you knew he was about to whip the tar out of somebody. 
This is an excellent, excellent little B-movie directed by a cult favorite named Joseph A. H. Lewis who went on to more famous pictures and bigger budgeted pictures. But this one, which is called The Return of Wild Bill, is really excellent for a picture of its type. That's the beautiful Iris Meredith who played Nita Van Sloan in the Spider serial. And this other girl's name, Luana Walters. It's a good girl, bad girl kind of thing, which in itself for these Saturday matinee westerns was kind of an unusual touch. There's The Shadow, Rod LaRock in 1937's The Shadow Strikes. Interestingly, this is a publicity photo. This particular scene does not appear in the movie. It's another shot. That's LaRock in the, um, in the, over there on the third from the, uh, from the left with the mustache. This movie was so sloppy that in the credits, when they spell out Lamont Cranston, it's spelled Granston with a G. So low budget, yes. Successful, no. Uh, this is later on in the 40s. The Shadow uh, went to monogram movies. That's Kane Richmond down there. He wore a mask. He didn't cloud anybody's minds. He didn't wear any capes. He wore a black trench coat, a hat, and a mask. This is from The Shadow Returns. Second from the left wearing the cap is Shrevy, the cab driver. Margot Lane, played by Barbara Reed. Kane Richmond as Lamont Cranston. There he is. A weird, weird publicity shot of Warren Hull as Richard Wentworth with a spider painted on his face. <laughs> Spider's Web is, I think, one of the best serials of the sound era and a beautiful representation of the spider pulp. There's the spider with Ram Singh. They gave him a cape, a costume, and a, a hood that he does not wear in the pulp stories, but that really doesn't matter. There's Iris. Uh, I met her and interviewed her in 1976. She was a, a wonderful person. I've, I've printed that interview in Blood and Thunder. You can stop by and ask me about it if you're of a mind. Uh, this from Blue Book, Hawk of the Wilderness. Hawk of the Wilderness was an imitation Tarzan series written by a guy named William L. Chester, who did nothing else for the pulps but these stories. The character, the hawk's name was Kyoga, and that's the actor is Herman Bricks, who had played Tarzan in a movie called The New Adventures of Tarzan. He went on to greater fame as Bruce Bennett. He's one of the guys, he's the guy who gets killed with Humphrey Bogart and Tim Holt and Treasure of Sierra Madre. He's the guy who comes to their camp at night and later he gets killed. He became a pretty good actor at this point. He was uh, making about $75 a week. Tyrone Power is Zorro. This was the big budget 20th Century Fox remake. Uh, they bought the Douglas Fairbanks picture, and consequently, it owes more to the Fairbanks picture than it does to Macaulay's Curse of Capistrano. Uh, Tyrone Power was not exactly, he was, he was a romantic guy. He was not the, the, the great athlete or the virile guy that Fairbanks was. And one of the New York critics famously wrote that for a swashbuckler, Tyrone Power has more swish than swash. <laughs> Power is Don Diego with Linda Darnell, who at the time this movie was made was just 16 years old. Bogart, the Maltese Falcon, Elisha Cook Jr. as Wilmer, the Gunsel. Bogart, Mary Astor, Barton McLean, Peter Laurie, and Ward Bond. The Leopard Man was based on a Cornell Woolrich novel, Black Alibi, which in turn had, had been based on a pulp story called The Street of Forgotten Death or Street of Jungle Death, which appeared in the uh, magazine Strange Detective Mysteries. Excellent B-movie, really good, takes liberties with Woolrich, but has the feel and uh, uh, the, the great suspense that Woolrich generated. Another great Woolrich movie, Phantom Lady. 
Uh, again, this is one that everybody talks about the book. It was actually serialized in the pulps first. It was serialized in Flynn's detective fiction as Phantom Alibi before it was published in hardcover as Phantom Lady. Another phenomenal movie, one of the great film noir classics. Uh, Bogart as Philip Marlowe and Lauren Bacall as uh, one of the Sternwood girls in Big Sleep. Uh, this is a uh, cast. They're rehearsing a scene. That's director Howard Hawks in the check shirt over on the left. Bogart Bahal, the, the actor here is Louis Jean Height. We're just about done, Mike. This is The Thing, The Thing from Another World, 1951, also directed by Howard Hawks, adapted kind of, sort of, from John W. Campbell's Who Goes There, which ran an astounding, astounding science fiction. One of the truly great science fiction movies, I think. And another uh, kind of iconic pulp adaptation, Rear Window, Jimmy Stewart and um, Grace Kelly. And this was adapted from the Woolworth story, It Had to Be Murder, which was in a 1942 issue of Dime Detective. Uh, I think this is the last one. Believe it or not, for as much as he wrote, for as many years as he wrote, H.B. Lovecraft did not reach the screen in a movie until 1963. And this is it. This is the first Lovecraft-based movie, The Haunted Palace which is loosely, and I stress loosely, based on the strange case of Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, there's been a lot of other Lovecraft since, but that's just a sample. So that's it. Uh, I wish I had more time, but thanks very much. Hope you enjoyed it. Please stop by my table. I'm at the Murania Press table. We've got a new issue of Blood and Thunder out, the first new issue in three years, and we've got some other books. And we can discuss this book and other film-to-pulp projects when you get a chance. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.